The scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The second reading is from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew its trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Laura. Our, our family recently watched the uh, live-action remake of The Little Mermaid, which was a... Uh, it was fun. It was a great movie. It was long. It was, uh, it was two hours and 15 minutes of a movie we'd already seen before, but it was, um, but it was, it was nice. But, you know, the, the plot of the movie really... Uh, hinges around Ariel, the little mermaid, who is longing for a different world. You know, here she is, and she is living under the sea, and um, it's not enough for her. I mean, she wants to be where the people are. She wants to see, wants to see them dancing. She wants to see them walking around on those, um, what's that word again? Feet. And, uh, but, you know, we watched this movie, and the more that I thought about it, I was like, that is a theme that runs through a lot of those classic Disney movies, this, this, this feeling that there's a character that's longing for a world outside of the one that they're currently living in, longing for a way of doing life that's different from the one that they have. So you think about uh, Tangled. You think about Rapunzel. She's trapped in this tower, and she wants to get out. She wants to see the world. She's dreaming of the world, but she was told it's scary and it's dangerous, and so she stays in her tower, and she never leaves until Flynn Rider shows up and says, yes, come with me. It is amazing. And she goes out, and she discovers that she's uh, you know, a child of royalty, as it were. You think about Moana, and uh, everyone, everyone in her village is telling her to just stay right where you are. This is what our village does. Tradition. That's our mission. We stay right where we are. But for Moana, uh, she keeps staring at the edge of the water. And uh, she wants more. She wants to get out there. She, see, you know, she says, you know, see that line where the sky meets the sea? It calls me. I want to I get out there. I want to be a voyager, not a villager. And you, know, you think about all these songs. You think about Dumbo. You think about Pinocchio. On and on and on we could go. All of these stories, what they're doing is they're tapping into this, I think universal experience that human beings have where we all have this suspicion that there's got to be more than this. Maybe there's more than the life that I have. Maybe there is a world out there, or maybe there's just a way of doing life that's going to be more fulfilling or more energizing or more meaningful than the one that I have. We're all longing for this world. And, and the reason why we're all longing for that world, I would say, and I think the Bible would say, is because that world exists. There is a world out there that we are all secretly longing for, whether or not we even know it. And that world, the Bible has a, has a word for that world, and that is the kingdom of God. And this idea is, it is such a, it is such a massive and central idea 
in the Bible that we're spending all fall talking about what, what is the kingdom of God. And we said last week, if you're someone who's not a Christian, this is a great place to start. You wrap your head around the kingdom of God, you've got your head around what Christianity is all about. If you are a Christian and you want to follow Jesus, you get your head around the kingdom of God, you get an idea of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So this is, this is the center of the bullseye. So for the sake of this morning, what I want to do is, is really just define our terms. What does that phrase mean? What do we mean? What does the Bible mean when it says kingdom of God? What is that? So let's try to answer that question under three headings, shall we? The uh, three angles I want to look at would be these. I want to look at the heart of the kingdom. Then we'll look at the goal of the kingdom. And then thirdly, we'll look at the beauty of the kingdom, the heart and the goal and the beauty. So first, the heart. In other words, what I mean by that, like what, what is the heart of, when we, when we say that, what, what do we mean? What is the essence? What is the heart of this thing? So, um, you know, there's, there's debates out there. So there are some people that have come along and said, well, the kingdom is another word for the church. When you think about the collective worldwide group of Christians out there, that mass of humanity called the church, that's the kingdom. And as we're going to see, that's uh, not entirely right. That's not entirely correct. And then you have other people out there that say, well, the kingdom is really just another word for heaven, right? It's where you go if you're in Jesus when you die. That's where you go. You go to, you go to the kingdom of heaven, right? And again, that's not entirely correct either. Uh, so what is it? Um, well, I think to understand uh, the kingdom of God, we, we need to un- you got to wrap your head around another kingdom. Let's talk about another kingdom. Let's talk about the Burger Kingdom. Burger King. If you, if you have watched television at all in the past few months, you've seen the commercials. You know the jingle. You can sing it just like my children do over and over and over. At BK, have it your way. <laughs> that was amazing. I wasn't planning on, I mean, right on pitch. You rule. That's right. But that's the idea. When you go into the Burger Kingdom, you're the king. You're the Burger King. You rule, which means you have it your way. That's what a kingdom is. A kingdom is a place where you rule, and when you rule, where it's what you say goes, where what you want to have happen happens. So uh, another way to think about it is, is like this. When I was younger, um, my family would go on long road trips, and my wife and I, or not my wife, my sister and I would share a, um, would share a, a you know, seat in the back, and um, that, that could have gotten really weird real fast. My, my sister and I, older sister and I, would share a seat in the back, and what we would do on these road trips is we would draw an invisible line down the middle of the seat as if to say, over here, this is my side, and you don't cross over, don't get on my side, and over there is your side, and you stay over there. And we didn't use this language, but what we were basically saying is, this is my kingdom over here, and don't come into my kingdom, because over here, I'm going to do what I want to do. And on my side of the kingdom, I'm going to play with G.I. Joes and eat nerds, and I'm going to do my thing over here. And my sister... Uh, on her side of the, uh, of, the, of the seat, she would, you know, listen to her 
1980s cassette tapes with her Walkman and, you know, didn't want anything to do with me. And so we kind of kept our kingdoms separate until inevitably one of us would get bored and intentionally try to provoke the other person and get on the other person's side and we'd cross the line and we would get upset and annoyed and bicker with each other and we'd, you know, create the scene in the back and then my dad, our dad, who's driving the car, while he's driving, he sees the commotion happening back there and he's using his hand and trying to get us to stop because who does he think the kingdom of the car is. He, he, this is his kingdom. And so he'd say things like this, don't make me pull this car over, which was his way of saying, I will enforce the rules of my kingdom if I have to. But the point is, is that you, a, a kingdom is a place where you rule, where you reign. The kingdom of God, therefore, is about the reign of God. The R-E-I-G-N, reign, not Rain, 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 the rule of God. It's where what God wants to have happen, that's what happens. And so we're looking at this passage in Matthew 6. This is a little slice taken out of the famous uh, Lord's Prayer. And so what does Jesus want his followers to pray? Uh, look at it. He says, you, you pray like this. Say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Okay, what does that mean? What are we praying for? He tells you in the next phrase. He says, your will be done. When you pray that prayer, you're asking for God to get his way. You're asking for him to reign, for his values and his vision of what he wants to see happen to happen. That's what is at the heart of of the kingdom. It is the reign. It is the rule of God. And so all throughout Jesus's ministry, he's painting pictures and he's giving you pictures of what it looks like. What does the world look like when God, when God's will is done, when God gets his way? It's almost like Jesus is saying, picture this, imagine a world in which there is no arrogance, in which there is no pride, there's not a strata of humanity where you have some people up here, these are the important, valuable people, and then down here, these are the expendable people. All of that's done. There's no more elitism. There's no more sexism. There's no more racism. He says, imagine a world in which um, there's no more conflict. There's no more fighting. There's no more war. There's no more division. There's no more tribalism. There's no more throwing grenades and bricks at each other of the opposite side of the aisle of the people that disagree with you. There's finally peace. And there's no more fear. There's no, uh, there's no crime. There's no poverty. There's no mental illness. There's no anxiety. There's no depression. There's like picture a world like that in which there's no confusion, in which truth is clear and God is rightly adored for who he is and all of his infinite beauty and celebrated in all of his infinite glory, Jesus is saying that world, that way of doing life, that's the world that we are all longing for. We're longing for things to be right, the way that things are supposed to be. In the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is Jesus says, that's the world that I've come to establish. That's the kingdom that I came to bring. Which raises this next question. Okay, if that's, what, if that's what's kind of at the heart of the kingdom, that can still sound really kind of vague, a little esoteric. 
Sounds like kind of spiritual stuff, God reigning. What, what does that mean? Like, what does it actually look like? Where do you want to see this happen? What is the goal? Well, let's look at it. Let's look at the second big idea, the goal of the kingdom. And in fact, uh, if you go back to the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells you. He says, okay, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Okay, where? On earth as it is in heaven. The vision of the kingdom is for God's will to be done here, like now, like in Central Gardens, in Cooper Young, in Evergreen, in Overton Square, in Crosstown, but not just our little corner of the neighborhood, on the earth, like in Rwanda, in Romania, in Brazil, for the entire world, for that to be the place where God's will is being done. You know, there's a, um, uh, a narrative out there. there there's, a, there's a lot of Christians that think that the goal of their lives is to get to heaven. That they think the point of, of what it means to be a Christian is uh, you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and he forgives all of your sins, and now the point of your life is to read the Bible every day and to go to church and to be nice And when you die, uh, your soul sprouts wings, and it leaves your body behind, and your soul goes off into the clouds where you are given a harp, and you're given a position in the choir, and your, your job is to now sing in a choir for eternity. That's the goal of salvation. That's the end game. That's the point, is for you to be in, in an eternal church service. And so rightly, many people think that doesn't sound very interesting. But what I want you to see is that even though there's some truth to that narrative, that's not Jesus' vision. I mean, look at it again. Jesus doesn't talk about us going up to heaven. He talks about heaven coming down to earth. That's his goal. In fact, you know, when he talks about heaven, heaven in his mind is not the ultimate destiny of the kingdom. Heaven is the standard May your will be done on earth in the same way that it's being done right now in heaven. Because, the, you know, the reason why heaven is heaven, the reason why it's, it's good and beautiful and perfect and amazing is because that's where God's will is perfectly being done. Anytime you have these pictures, these images of, of people in the throne room of God, people are voluntarily, joyfully worshiping and obeying God as their king. And that's why it's perfect. And so God is, or Jesus is saying here, here's what I want my people to long for. Here's what I want my people to pray for. Here's what I want my people to to work and to labor for is for God's will to be done in our families and in our personal lives and in our cities and our jobs and our neighborhoods in the same way that his will is perfectly being executed right now in heaven. We want earth to look like it is up there. That's his big goal. That's his big agenda. His big agenda is not to suck a bunch of souls from earth to heaven, but it's to bring heaven to earth. Now, think about it like this. I've got a good friend in Knoxville who um, recently acquired an old car. It's a 1976 Jaguar XJ12C. Very impressive. 
I didn't know what that was either. I'm not a car guy, so I Googled that. And when you Google that, it, it tells you apparently that model is the flagship model of Jaguar. It's a full-size luxury car. And it gives a list of all of the amenities of this 1976 luxury car, which include air conditioning, a Panasonic radio, and an ashtray, which is very luxurious for 1976. But my friend bought this car, and it had been sitting in a storage unit in Greer, South Carolina for years and years, and so it was broken down, and the paint job was all rusted out, the engine didn't work, and he bought this thing and had it towed to his garage, and it sat in his garage, and this kind of became his little pet project, little hobby. After he'd get home from uh, work and put the kids down or whatever, he'd go out into the garage to kind of decompress, and, and, and he would just tinker with this car, kind of trying to fix it up. He'd go to the engine, he'd watch YouTube videos of how do you replace spark plugs or whatever, fill in the blank of whatever item is in an engine in a car. He's, he's, he's slowly replacing and fixing all of these pieces. He's, he's cleaning out the inside and uh, fixing the windows. He redoes the, the paint. And so slowly, over the course of two years, part by part by part by part, he refurbishes this thing, takes this thing from this old, rusted out, nasty, broken down piece of junk to like this. I mean, he sent me a picture of it. It's amazing. This, um, I mean, you picture like a 1976 Jaguar XJ12C, shiny, fresh black paint, rolling through downtown Knoxville with the windows down, playing music like you're in the movie Grease. I mean, just living it up. That's, that's him, but here's what he did. He took that car and brought it back to life. That's the image. The Bible says that God created this world, and it was good, and it was beautiful, and it was right, but we looked at the king and his will, and we said, we don't want you to be in charge. We want to be in charge. We rule. And as a result, our world disintegrated. Our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with ourselves was broken. Our relationship with other people. I mean, I don't have to convince you that the world that you woke up in this morning is a mess. Mass shootings and abuse and addiction and pain and crime and on and on and on. But here's what I want you to see. God's solution to the mess is not to just install this giant eject button that if you just pray this prayer, you get to hit the button and you get to spring load out of this broken down, rusted place. His solution, his goal is to renovate it, to redeem it, to restore it, to make it right, to make it new again. In fact, if, if you want a, um, a very simple definition, the Matt Howell definition of what the kingdom of God is, I would say that the kingdom of God is God's revolution of making all things new. That's what it is. We're going to build off of that, that definition in the weeks to come, but that's what God's doing. When he looks at the world that is broken, that's rusted out, that's deteriorated, the goal is to renovate it, to restore our broken relationship with him and with each other so that every aspect of the world starts to work the way that it was supposed to. Families restored, the arts community restored, government restored, education, all the pieces of our society, his will being done as it is in heaven. And in fact, the reason why I um, included this last 
last uh, passage from Revelation 11. It's because I wanted you to see that this is, this is the vision that the Bible gives us of, of how human history ends. Look, look at this uh, verse. It's amazing. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. And what were they saying? They were saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The big goal that God is working towards is for the earth to become the kingdom of God, and the good news is, is it's going to happen. He's going to do it. How? That's the last question. How does he go about this massive renovation project? Thirdly, let's look at the beauty of the kingdom. That's the heart. It's the goal. Let's look at the beauty of it. And to do that, we we need to um, talk about Jesus. Because when Jesus shows up and he's talking about the kingdom and he's saying we should pray for the kingdom, he's not just announcing that the kingdom has arrived. He he is embodying it as well. In other words, he's, he's not just telling you about the kingdom. He's showing you. What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, okay, look at, look at his life. Look what he does. He, he, he comes on the scene, and he gathers a group of people around himself, and the people that he gathers to himself, uh, on the surface, it, it makes zero sense because these are people that previously had wanted nothing to do with each other. These are people from very different political parties. These are people from different socioeconomic statuses. These are, uh, these are uh, different races. You, you've got men and women. You, you've got all these different types of people that are coming together, and they're forming an alternative human society, a way that relationships have never been done before, where people in this community, you, you have women for the first time that are being honored and dignified and, and protected in ways they never had before in that, in that cultural context. You had... Um, the poor and you had the sick that weren't just being ignored and, and avoided, but they were given attention and they were being cared for. Their medical needs were being dealt with. You, have, um, you had unwanted uh, children that weren't just being discarded in trash cans and in the streets, but they were being brought in and, and adopted into families. You, you see the kingdom actually breaking in to people's relationships, people's actual lives. And not just this community. Then you have Jesus walking around, and he's doing all of this mind-blowing stuff. He's, he's healing people. He's feeding people. He's raising the dead. He's calming storms. And I, I mentioned this last week, but in Luke chapter 11, he tells you why he's doing all this stuff. He says, when I do this stuff, it is, quote, it's to show that the kingdom of God has come upon you. The reign of God is breaking into a chaotic and broken creation. Human beings were not designed to starve, and so he feeds them. Human beings were not designed to be sick, so he shows you I'm healing them. Human beings were not designed to die, so he raises them. He's given you all of these snapshots to show you I am here to restore and to renovate what is broken in the world. And then it gets really confusing because at the end of his life, he's praying about God's will. This is right after the uh, final supper, the last supper that he has with his disciples. And he goes down to the Mount of Olives 
And it says in Luke chapter 22 that he prays this. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, the cup he's referring to is the cross. He's looking ahead to his crucifixion, to his execution, and he says, Lord, I want your will to be done, but if your will involves this not happening, let's do that. Remove this cup from me so I don't have to drink it. And then what does he pray right after that? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's praying for the Lord's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, even if it means his own execution. Now, you hear that and you think, okay, but why would that even be part of the scenario? Why would the Lord will for the king to be destroyed, to be, for the king to die? Why, why would that be what God wants? In fact, if you, if you go back into the Hebrew Scriptures, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, looking hundreds of years ahead to Jesus, here's what it says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why in the, Lord would it, why in the world would it be the will of the Lord to crush the one who is himself the embodiment of righteousness and peace and wholeness? It doesn't make any sense. Hold on to that question and think about it like this for a second. Some of you know that earlier this summer, my family uh, experienced some um, not fun house issues. Our good friend Pastor Ben up here a number of months ago shared about the water issues that destroyed his house. And so I thought, oh, I'll just share some of the water issues that have destroyed our house as well. So earlier this summer, our family's hanging out in the living room and we're watching uh, it, and um, it's a joke. Um, and then w- water starts coming from the ceiling into the, onto the ground, like onto the floor. I'm, we're grabbing towels. I'm, I'm at one point trying to catch it with my hands because I'm panicking. I don't know what to do. It's, it's, uh, where, we did not figure out where is this water coming from. That was the big baffling question. Somehow water is getting into our house. How is it getting in? We called roofers to figure out if it's the roof. We called plumbers to figure out if it's the plumbing. We hired contractors. We had to demo our entire ceiling. We hired uh, mold inspectors to see, where, you know, is the water, is there mold forming behind the walls now? And, and on and on and on and on. But we eventually figured out it was a plumbing issue, a leak in our shower that was dripping through and wrecked everything in our in our living room is still in disarray. It is wonderful to own own a home. Um, But my point is, in order to get our living room back up and running, in order to repair what was damaged, that doesn't just magically happen. Someone has to pay for that. Someone has to pay for the demo work and for the plumbing to get fixed and for the new ceiling to get put back on and for the mold inspector. And so, Either our family pays for it, and we dip into our savings, and we, we, it cuts into our resources to pay for this, or the insurance company decides they're going to cut into their savings and into their resources in order to pay for this. And praise be to the Lord that it was the insurance company that said, we will be the ones that will pay for this. But my point is, someone had to pay, had to pay for the repair. And in the same way, when you look at the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of creation, someone has to pay for it. 
And the gospel is God has said from before all of time that he's going to be the one that's going to pay for it, even though we're the ones that caused the damage in the first place. And so he sends the king, the one who's actually trying to make all things become new, and he's the one who gets destroyed. He's the one that gets crushed so that the world could be renovated. He's the one who gets ripped apart so that things could be mended and put back right again. This is why the kingdom is infinitely beautiful because that world that we're longing for, that world of wholeness and peace and forgiveness and things being restored and made right, that world is beautiful in and of itself. But then when you realize that is offered for free, it's just given as a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. He just does it. That's what makes it infinitely more beautiful to know it is all of grace. It's all a gift. And the way that we participate in it is simply to come to the king. I mean, think about this. Why did Jesus come as this weak, poor, suffering, broken person? Why so lowly? Why so humble? Why so broken? Why did he have to suffer? If Jesus came as the strong, conquering king and said, hey, follow me, then only those who were strong, only those who were, you know, could qualify, only those who, who felt like they could live up to his standards could get into the kingdom. If Jesus came as this wise, infinitely brilliant spiritual guru and says, this is the path, this is the way, believe these things, practice these things, do these religious things, come on, then only the spiritually strong could get in. Only those who are spiritually sensitive, the wise, only those people at that level could get into the kingdom. But by Jesus coming weak and lowly and humble and broken, that means anybody can get in. All you need is need, and anybody can get that. Anybody can come to Jesus in humility. That means that this kingdom that we are all longing for, it is available to sinners. It's available to addicts. It's available to doubters. It's available to the insecure, to the overlooked, to the anxious, to the depressed. It's available to anybody. Anybody who is willing to bend the knee and to come to Jesus. So the invitation for you and for me this morning, if the kingdom is real, and I think it is, the way that you receive it is to simply come to the king. You don't earn it. You don't jump through hoops to get it. You don't have to impress him. You don't need money. You don't need a resume. You just show up. That's good news. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray that in your infinite goodness, you, you might give us a vision of a kingdom that may be more beautiful and better uh, than the one that we uh, have in our imagination. We pray that you would uh, overwhelm our senses with a sense of the kingdom as it most beautifully really is, and would you draw our hearts to it and help us to humble our hearts, help, uh, help us to uh, resist our own autonomy that says we so desperately want to rule. We want our will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and Father, show us a better way. 
show us the beauty and the glory and the grace of our true king who invites us to simply come. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.